Would you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We've been looking for several weeks now at these verses. And these verses start off with the incomprehensible description of who Christ is as the eternal Son of God. The one through whom creation came about and the one through whom creation is maintained and held together. We are shown here in this text the wonderful nature of our Savior, not only as truly God, truly man in one person, we are brought to see that He is eternal, that He is exalted, that all things are His, and that because all things are His, He holds things together. And so in many ways, Hebrews starts off with these statements, these high, glorious statements that are beyond our understanding and beyond comprehending to something that we can comprehend, and that is this, is this same one that is our eternal God also became man and has done and accomplished work for his people. And that's what we encounter this morning. And we see it so clearly in the text that he is our priest, he is our king, and he is our prophet. And so we move from the incomprehensible to that which we have experienced, that if you're in Christ, you've experienced salvation. And we see it so clearly stated in our text this morning. Let me read verses 1 through 4, and then we will hone in on verse 3 and 4. This is the Word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. And we're looking specifically this morning at this proposition that He has made purification for sins. And this is referencing what the book of Hebrews is going to focus in on later as the priesthood of Christ. This is showing his priestly action that he has made purification for sins. And so when we read this phrase, after, it's in verse 3, after making purification of sin, for sins, think of Christ as the priest. This is speaking of the accomplishment of atonement. It reads, after making purification for sins, which means this, it is something he has completed. It is something that is accomplished. It is something that cannot be repeated because it's already done. In fact, we see that temporal significance there with the word after. This is something He has done. He has made purification for sins. So, so simply, Christ 
accomplished salvation. Salvation is complete. It's done. Now notice what it says. It's after making purification for sins. If you have the King James Version, or if you're familiar with it, you'll see these words in there. When he had by himself purged our sins... And the oldest manuscripts don't have that phrase when he had by himself in the text. And so you see it missing in more more modern translations. But nonetheless, the, the grammar still suggests something incredibly important for us in this. Is this purification of sins is a definite act that Christ has accomplished in himself. It is something that he has done, accomplished by him, and it was accomplished in him. And you think of this, Christ brings forth, or God brings forth the world through his word, which is Christ. All things are held together by him. But salvation is not accomplished by God speaking it. Rather, salvation is accomplished in himself, by his Son. Christ did not accomplish salvation by electing a substitute. Christ did not make salvation possible by any other means, but by himself. So how is it that we have salvation? It's Christ in himself that accomplishes us. In fact, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter that Christ himself is the elect substitute. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 18, we read these words, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown, that is, He was elected before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Let me put it to you this way. The incomprehensibility of God in who He is condescends, becomes a man for the sake of man that has rebelled against Him and accomplishes salvation for them. Now you look, and this is written to the Hebrews, those that would have been familiar with the Old Testament sacrifice system, and they were looking to that as a, as a means. John Owen, the Puritan, summarizes this point by saying, in the Old Covenant, the priest, the altar, the fire, the animal, the incense, the atonement, could not take place in any one of those things. So you think about that. What was used for atonement in the Old Testament? The priest, the incense, fire, animal, all of those things would be used in the means of atonement. God doesn't use those things. He actually, Christ, He uses And so it's accomplished then. Christ is all of those things that they pointed to. Christ himself, it becomes the means for salvation. So it's amazing that when we look at the contextual progression of this verse, of these verses here, it's speaking of who Christ is in his nature, and then it moves to this work that he does on our behalf. Let that sit in. Eternal God does a work on your behalf. Not because we motivated Him to. 
Not because we compelled Him to, but because in love He did this. He decided. Now what was accomplished? Specifically, you'll notice the text says, purification for sins. So what's accomplished in Christ is purification. That is this, is that in atonement, God views you now as clean. Sin presents a a wall of separation between the sinner and God. A, A gulf that is put there that cannot be crossed because of sin, because one is defiled. And we see that in Christ, there's actually a purification, a cleansing from sin. And so if you put this together, that this is an accomplished act, it means in Christ, the sin is viewed as not only gone, but the sinner is now viewed as clean. You might say, righteous. One is made pure. This idea of purification, it speaks of removal of something. And it's that removal of what was it, it was that defiled us. You know, when you do a word study of this word here, purification, you find it's not a very common New Testament word. So why do they use this phrase here in Hebrews? Well, the, the book of Hebrews was written to those of, of Jewish faith. They, they had the Old Testament. And they understood this idea of purification from an Old Testament background especially in the book of Leviticus. And the Jewish people thought in terms of things of clean and unclean. But specifically here, when we think about this, we need to be thinking of the book of Leviticus. If you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Many people have said Leviticus 16 is the most important book or chapter in all of the Bible. It speaks of the Day of Atonement, and specifically in verse 30, it reads this, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. That is purification. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And so the Day of Atonement was showing this cleansing that would take place, that you would be cleansed. Now what was the process for getting there? to getting this cleansing, for atonement to be made where one would be considered clean. Well, you go to verse 6 of chapter 16, and it starts with this, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So the high priest would then have to make sure that his sins had been atoned, that he himself would be considered clean before he could even offer a sacrifice on the behalf of the people. That's what the high priest would have to do. You see in verse 11, it states it again, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So the high priest, before he could even do the the mediator work before the people, he had to see that his own sins were cleansed. And there's this connection here that we need to see between the idea of blood and cleansing. 
which sounds strange to our ears. But that was part of the sacrificial system. You see in verse 14 of Leviticus 16 still, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat, on the east side and in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then in verse 19, And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it. That is means it sets it aside as holy from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So what's this process that's taking place? Is this what we would see as an unclean process? We, that's how we would see it. But to them, this is what God instituted as a means of purification. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the process here of atonement, for one to be clean, you see what's happening here, is the priest himself has to offer a sacrifice for himself, for his house, for his family. Then they have to go through this very bloody process of cleansing the altar, cleansing the area. In fact, you read in verse 20 of Leviticus 16, and when he has made an end of atonement for the holy place... And the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So he had to cleanse the whole entire area. So you see this long process. When that has happened, then you read finally in verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. You see this this process in order for sins to be atoned in the Old Covenant. But here's the problem. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This whole process was pointing to something greater. That's why it's actually described in the text of Leviticus. You'll notice that Three times after verse 30, this is something that is for a perpetual sacrifice. It's a statute forever. In other words, in the Old Covenant, this was something that did not happen just once. It was something that happened every year. And every year as a statute forever. What's the problem? You go, and you have your sins atoned for, you walk away, and guess what? As soon as you walked away, what do you need? Atonement. As soon as you've been cleansed, guess what you need? You need to be cleansed again. As soon as you turn around, and we know this, we know this inherently in ourselves, It's not a matter of whether we sin. It's a matter of how much we sin. 
as soon as they would walk away, they were in need of atonement again. And since this was a perpetual sacrifice, a statute forever, it means then it could only be fulfilled and truly realized in one who is eternal. Now we see the importance that the author of Hebrews makes in showing us that Christ is the eternal Son of God. A statute forever could only be realized in one who is everlasting, one who is forever. And it was realized in Christ. It was accomplished in Christ. It was something definite in Christ. And it's non-repeatable in Christ. Think of the beauty of that. If you're in Christ, you don't walk away from Christ and say, Oh, I'm unclean. No, if you're in Christ, you're clean. It's the beauty of the gospel. As the beauty of the gospel and the salvation that we have in Christ. It is a fulfillment and it is a finished work that took place that Christ accomplished on the cross. In fact, when you read of the cross and what Christ accomplished on the cross, it's always stated in this idea of something that is done, that is definite. In Colossians, Paul writes this way, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven, notice it's past tense, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. When was the accomplishment of salvation taking place? It was on the cross. It's something that's finished. It's done. The cross is never viewed as something lacking or hypothetical, but rather something that is accomplished and that is complete. Jesus shows us in a vivid illustration in the washing of the disciples' feet. And you know the story, when he comes to Peter, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but now... But afterwards, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. That's what it means that Christ made purification for sins, is that the one that stands in Christ is completely cleansed. But there's something else that we should see in this, is that what Christ accomplished is exactly what we are told is promised in the New Covenant In the New Covenant, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will 
cleanse you. How? Through new birth. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The the old covenant system could never provide perpetual cleanness. But the new covenant promises this. It promises us that we will be cleansed. And how is this realized? It says we are purified from our sins, which we then have to deal with the fact that we are what? We're sinners. We've actually sinned. And here's how we know that we've sinned. The wages of sin is death. Death is a constant reminder to us that we are sinners. Not only are we born with Adam's sin, but we actively sin against God. And we read this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are born in Adam's sin. So we are born sinners and we continue to sin. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. God who is holy, who is set apart, that is clean because of our inheritance from Adam, because we continue to sin, we then are said to be defiled and dirty. But the gospel is this. If you're in Christ, you're no longer seen that way. He cleans up our mess. You think of this picture. You know, a child spills something because that's what kids do. A loving father doesn't chastise the child, but rather comes up and cleans up their mess for them and says, it's okay, it's cleaned, I have cleansed it for you. That's the picture of the gospel. That we are cleansed by God's grace from our rebellion. Our guilt and filthiness is removed. And what's that symbolized in? Our baptism. We are buried with Christ, raised to walk in a newness of life. Not only does the new covenant show us a cleansing But the sign of the new covenant in baptism symbolizes it very vividly in our washing. So let me tell you this, this morning, if you are in Christ, the Father views you not as guilty, not as defiled. He views you as clean. He views you as righteous. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation. That word propitiation is a difficult word, but here's what it means. It means that God's wrath has been appeased by Christ. And if God's wrath has been appeased by Christ, then it means he doesn't view you with wrath. He views you with love. This is why we can, be, we can call Christ our elder brother. 
We see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You think of what it tells us in Romans, that we're adopted as children of God, where we may cry out, Abba, Father. And then Hebrews tells us that Jesus calls us his brothers. Why? Because he has made purification for sins. Because he has taken those. He has made you cleansed. Let me tell you, we do not have to live with the guilt of our past mistakes or have a guilty conscience. In fact, what Christ has accomplished is for that very purpose, is to show us that we have been made clean and we don't have to live with a guilty conscience. Hebrews 9.13 says this, For if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works to serve the living God. We've been made clean. You see, the Scripture teaches us over and over again, if we are in Christ, we are forgiven. But isn't this the hard thing about the Christian life? Is to recognize, in Christ I'm forgiven, but we still live in this flesh, and what do we sometimes do? We still sin. And so we let that weigh us down. We let that bear ourselves down. And sometimes we'll even say these type of phrases like this, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Think about that for a second. That's to state that we have a higher moral standard than God Himself. If you're in Christ, you're forgiven. And if you can be forgiven against a holy God, certainly you can live without that guilty conscience of the past because it's been set free in Christ as something that is accomplished. We are not to live as Christians as if we are still guilty or defiled. We are to live as Christians that have been cleansed because our sin is not greater than the blood of Christ. If you forget that or doubt it, just remind yourself of this simple thing. The sovereign, all-powerful God did something. He became a man, and in becoming man, He accomplished something by and with the same power in which He created and maintained all things, and that is the purification of sins. And in Isaiah 43, we have this wonderful reminder, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's not that God forgets something, it's that God doesn't bring them up anymore. It's gone because you've been cleansed in Christ. And so we see His priesthood in this first proposition that we see in the text. But then we move on to show how it was completed. What he does after making purification for sins 
is that we see that it's culminated in this. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which shows us that he is not only our priest, but he is our king. And this is his coronation. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is likely a reference to Psalm 110. And in verse 1, in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this introduces this idea that Christ is king. And I want you to, in, in verse 3, we see this introduced. But then if you just go over to verse 13, still in Hebrews chapter 1, Psalm 110 is quoted Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so actually what takes place after he makes a statement all the way through the end of the chapter is dealing with this very point that he is king and that he is greater. Specifically, it's going to go into that he is greater than the the angels. But Psalm 110 is something that Christ says of himself over and over again. Christ says it, and you see it in the other places in the New Testament, that Christ is the one who has sat down on the majesty on high, and Psalm 110 is the one that, verse that is quoted. What does it mean to be sat down? That he sat down, this is an official position, but there's something significant about this. If Christ has completed a work in purification of sins, he's no longer having to do that work. He has to sit down. The high priest would have to do what? Remain standing. Christ sits down to show. Whereas the high priest would remain standing and they had to do that forever, Christ has completed his work. He's able to sit down. And so as he becomes, as he is recognized as king, as he is, is, is enthroned in his coronation, it's because he completed. That's why we see the words, after making purification of sins, after he accomplished his work that the Father sent him to do, after that, he then is shown to be king. And it's at the right hand, which is the position of power, of protection, of triumph, but it's a power without limitation. It's a, it's a protection without limitation. This is the sitting as a king. And, and the right hand is the, the position that shares all the privileges. And obviously this is metaphorical use to show us that he is king. But this title of majesty on high that he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a title for God alone. And so this is speaking of him sitting at the right hand of the Father. But one thing is that we see in Scripture is that the Son also has this majesty attributed to himself. In Second Peter, you see it in chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the, so the same attributes of majesty and glory that are given to the Father are shown to be upon the Son. That he sat down at the mad, right hand of the majesty on high, but yet he is full of majesty. What's the significance of this, that he sits down at the right hand of the Father? The, the first point, and this is a point that we made several weeks ago, but it's good to be reminded of it, and the first is the fulfillment of Scripture. Israel was set to rule. We read this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. His son was to be set aside. Israel was to be that son to serve, to rule over the land. And by the time you get to David... You begin to see a fulfillment of this taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 8 we read, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, that David was to rule. And as you're following along from these promises of that the scepter will never depart from Judah, that you see these promises that, that Israel, my firstborn son, shall be, go, be released to serve me. And then you get to David, you think, okay, this promise for a king to be over Israel, it's being fulfilled in David. But then, actually, the promise to David, you see, wasn't to David, but was for David's son. You read that in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring, your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. What well, then happened in Solomon? It didn't happen in Rehoboam. It didn't happen in all the other kings that came. But it's been accomplished in Christ. That He rules. Him sitting down is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel are realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say, if you miss that point, you will misunderstand the Old Testament promises altogether. But what are the other implications of this? That he not only is the fulfillment of Scripture, that he is the Davidic king. Well, the other significance that we see in this is that he has the power of judgment. And it's stated to this sitting down, and ruling in Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on, his, on the left. And if you remember what was read is we opened worship from Psalm 109 that He places on His right hand the needy. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And this is looking forward to that separating point of this day, this age, into the next age, because the king will then separate the sheep from the goats. There's another thing is is this, is the right hand is one with the one on the throne. And Matthew chapter 26, verse 64 says this, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What do the priests do when Jesus says this? They tore their robes and they said he has uttered blasphemy because they knew what he was saying. I and the Father are one, which he had been saying all along. But there's something else wonderful about this idea that should be an encouragement for us. That he sat down on the majesty on high is he's ruling over all things right now, which, which we looked at quite a bit last week. But when you read through the book of Acts, and as we spent several months in the book of Acts, we saw continually from the book of Acts one central truth, Christ ruling from his his throne, overseeing the growth of the church. And you see this connection of Christ pouring out the Spirit upon the church to equip it for the mission. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." In other words, Christ from his throne pours out his spirit to equip the church, to empower the church. We never have to look anywhere else but Christ for the accomplishment of the mission of the church. For it's Christ from his throne that pours out his spirit upon the church. There's something else that's comforting for us about this, about him sitting down at the right hand. And it's this, as he is right now interceding for you. This one that is the eternal Son of God is interceding on behalf of the church at this moment. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 34, we read this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And you wonder, what's he doing at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? If we don't understand the implication of that, Paul tells us in the next verse, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is obvious, no one. Why? Because he is sovereign king that is ruling and he is interceding right now. He ever lives to intercede as Hebrews tells us. This is significance. 
that he is our king, that he sat down. But this is also means something else for us. This is our confession and an uncompromisable truth of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and here it is, taken up in glory. That is what we confess. Is great is the mystery of godliness. Prior to that, Paul says that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. What is our truth? Our truth is this, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, and there he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is our confession. That is the uncompromisable truth of the church. It amazes me, just last week we were talking in Sunday school how for there was a growing group of Christians in the early 19th century, where they, they called themselves Christians, but they denied the resurrection because you couldn't observe it. That's not Christianity. That's something else. The truth that we confess is Christ in the flesh who accomplished salvation of sins and now sits at the right hand of the Father. A.W. Pink says of this, the present possession of glory by the mediator is the conclusive evidence that my sins are put away. All of these things now that we have looked at provide the source of our comfort is that our sins have been removed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sat down. He'd still be standing, waiting to accomplish it. You see how the point of purification of sins is complete? You're forgiven, you're clean. And then the reminder of it, in case you forgot, forgot, Christ sat down, that means it's accomplished. It's complete. So we see he is our priest. We see he is our king. And finally, we see our prophet in verse 4. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Now you might be wondering, how does this relate to being a prophet? Because a prophet is one who brings revelation. A prophet is one who, who brings communication of something. But I just want you to notice is that, first of all, this brings a series of arguments This verse introduces what will become a series of arguments that are going to be realized through the rest of the chapter. In fact, if you look at the final verse of chapter 1, it says, Are they not all, this is angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? It's speaking of angels all the way through the chapter. And so he introduces this, that he has become much superior to angels. What's the big deal with the angels, you might be wondering? Well, it says he has an excellent, more excellent name than theirs. 
But why is there this focus on angels? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, it tells us why. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, it's the idea that angels mediated the Old Covenant. In fact, you see that in Galatians, in chapter 3, in verse 19, Paul writes this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom he the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. God doesn't send an angel to accomplish salvation. He sends his son. And because he sends his son, the name he inherits is much more excellent than theirs. Shows us another difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Christ mediates the New Covenant, which tells us this, Christ is superior to the Sinai Covenant. What was at Sinai? It was the giving of the law. If you keep this law, you'll be blessed. If you break this law, you'll be cursed. If you keep this law, you'll be fruitful. Your land will bear fruit. Your womb will bear fruit. You will have blessings. Your enemies will run from you. But if you don't, actually your land will go dry. There will be drought. You'll lose your land. Your, your fruit uh, will, will no longer produce. It was a conditional covenant. How long did Israel last In fulfilling the covenant, they didn't. So what we see here is Christ and not only the accomplishment of our salvation, he mediates a greater one. What once bound the people by law and where they once placed their hope is now fulfilled in Christ, meaning this, it's now complete. And so here, the primary point of these passages here is the completeness of God's plan of redemption is found in Jesus. Why? Because He is the final and complete revelation of God. He in His incarnation is the inheritor of all things, and we have in Him an imperishable inheritance awaiting us. We see that He is the image of the invisible God. And the Father is the source, and the Son is the effulgence of the Father. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the world. He has accomplished forgiveness of sins and now reigns as sovereign king. And because of these things, Jesus is more excellent than anything that came before Him. And as He is final, it means this, we have nothing else to which we are looking. Where are we looking to get forgiveness of sins? Where are we looking to get an easing of our conscience? Where are we looking to to be made clean? Let me just ask you this morning, what, what are you looking for this morning? Where does your hope lie? Is it in your works that you were a good neighbor, that you tried your best? Your good deeds? Maybe your sense of being a good citizen. Maybe you find your hope in politics. The right politician gets in place and we'll be okay. 
Maybe it's just the right laws being passed or the right laws being nullified. Maybe it's in having the right investment as we face uncertainty with the economy. Maybe it's the job that we, we thought would always provide for us. Where is it that you look this morning? Let me just tell you, if you're looking anywhere else than finding your hope in the eternal Son of God, you're looking at those things that will fail you, that are not lasting. Here's the good news. We need to look no further than Jesus. And we need to never grow tired of speaking, of teaching, and preaching about Jesus. For if we preach the Bible, if we read the Bible, it will be about Jesus. And why is that? It's because He is our only hope and the only person that can give us forgiveness of sins and make us cleansed. And because we do sin because we do feel guilt, because we do feel those things, then we should constantly be putting before our face the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, are you forgiven? Have you rested in the Lord Jesus as the only means of salvation? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if not, you need to trust in Him. Because these promises of cleansing and forgiveness are for His and His own. And if you're not His own, if you're not in Christ, that's not for you, but you can turn to Him. You can look to Him and be cleansed and have forgiveness of sin. And if you have received Christ as your Savior, then you need to rejoice that in Him alone you have a complete salvation, a finished transaction, your sins for His righteousness. And it is complete in Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ.